thank you again for joining me on this edition of the Free Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. This edition is going to be a bit shorter than what my shows normally are, though I suppose not that much shorter after I've written it all out. Think of this as a really hearty snack rather than a full meal. Today, I just want to draw out some observations from a few recent interactions that I've had in a certain Facebook group. No intro or anything like that. Let's just get right into it. I've noticed a growing trend in the online atheistic fundamentalist movement toward a kind of hyper-biased anti-intellectualism and a willingness to reject even the most basic logic in order to maintain their anti-religious stance. I'm reminded of the military scorched earth strategy where one is willing to destroy anything and everything during a retreat so that the advancing army has no access to food, resources, communication lines, roads, railways, shelters, and so on from the area that they are advancing into. When discussing these certain atheistic fundamentalists, it often gets so bizarre that I'm frequently tempted to think that I'm being punked and that they are just at their computer snickering to themselves because they know how irrational they're being, but just enjoy the spectacle of it all. Maybe that is because I just want to give them the benefit of the doubt that they're not actually that irrational, but from all they do and say, it appears that they really, really are. Some of you may know that I've been doing these online discussions for about a decade now and have been commenting on this shift toward an atheistic fundamentalism for some time now. But in all my time doing this, I have yet to see it get this bad. So let's look at some of the features of this new drop in the level of, let's just call it atheistic rhetoric for a, a loss of a better term. The first feature is that scholarship isn't really scholarship if you don't like what it has to say. This kind of rhetoric is not really that new, but it has definitely been ratcheted up a bit. It has been commonplace among the new atheists to object to any scholarship dealing with the Bible because they think that the Bible is a fairy tale. So to them, biblical scholars are just experts in fairy tales. Now, let me address this really fast before moving on to the deeper problem that is on the horizon. First, even if we assume for the sake of argument that the Bible is a bunch of fairy tales, to say that there can be no legitimate scholarship on it is just absurd. Just because something is fiction doesn't mean that it cannot be the subject of great and robust scholarship. This is why we have Homerian scholars, Shakespearean scholars, and so on. When we want to talk about the literary features, plots, themes, history, culture, socioeconomic background, and other contexts of a certain work of literature, we don't need to think that the, what the literature says is necessarily true in order to study it. Often, we see this when talking to atheists about what the Bible even says, not whether or not God exists or if Jesus is God incarnate or if the history of Judges, for example, is accurate history. Just what does the text say and mean within the context of the author or redactor's original uh, historical Sitzenleben or situation in life is a valid question. The second problem here is that this reveals the objector's own bias, who assumes that the Bible must be false, usually they won't even grant simple historiographical aspects of the text, and thus say 
uh, that anyone who believes in it is so biased that they can't be a trustworthy scholar. Well, here's the problem. They are biased in the opposite direction. This would mean that by their same standard, we would need to reject everything that they say and those scholars who agree with them say because we write off anyone who disagrees with us or holds to a position that we find absurd, no matter how great their credentials are. Ignoring the fact that there are some great biblical scholars and historians of all worldviews, and so to write off the entire discipline because they think that they are all quote-unquote undercover creationists, for example, yes, I was told that by one of them, what we see then is the revolving door of a downward spiral. They, they start with a view of the Bible that is not informed by scholarship, because they won't read it, which gives them their negative views. They then, because of their negative views, will only read other atheistic bloggers and pundits who then reinforce those negative views, making them even less likely to read any actual scholarship. Because they haven't read any scholarship, they then again do not have their views challenged and down the spiral goes. That is, they're not educated in the exact area that they would need to be to know just how biased they are. This is the Dunning-Kruger effect. The third problem is that this is just an ad hominem. An ad hominem is a type of informal fallacy in the family of the genetic fallacy, which seeks to undermine a claim or belief by appealing to something about a person making a claim or trying to say that why they believe it is stupid or irrational or biased or whatever. By the way, an ad hominem is not just an insult. It's an insult or an aspect of a person that says, therefore their argument is false, or therefore their position is not reasonable or whatever like that. It's not just an insult. So a lot of people use ad hominem in an invalid way, but this is an invalid argument. So the atheist here is literally making the claim, for example, quote, we cannot trust this group of scholars on the Bible because they are Christian, end quote. That is, there is some feature about that person that I don't like, therefore I'm going to reject the claim that's being made. That is an ad hominem fallacy. This becomes especially fallacious when the thing you don't like just is that they disagree with you or agree with the position that they are asserting. Imagine if any Christian said, quote, well, Richard Dawkins is too biased to be trusted on evolution. I mean, he believes that it is true, so we can't trust him to unbiasedly evaluate evolutionary claims, end quote. That is, the claim is that if someone believes something, they're too biased to be trusted about it. This commonly happens when we're talking about the gospel writers where the quote unquote skeptic says that we cannot trust the gospel writers. Why? basically because they believe what they're writing is true, <laughs> which is absurd. So that is the trend that we have seen among atheists online for a really long time now. That's not actually the problem that I'm addressing here. What I've seen now is that it has escalated exponentially. What was in seed form has now started to blossom. In a recent thread, I was discussing the history of the interactions between science and religion, a rather mundane topic. Someone started giving the same old tired and long debunked statements regarding the long warfare uh, between science and religion. They said Galileo was tortured and put in prison just because he quote unquote proved heliocentrism, which he didn't. 
that Copernicus was persecuted for the same, that Huxley had made a fool of Wilberforce, and so on. When I mention that all of these were features of a known revisionist myth of the late 19th century, and that historians of science have long rejected what has been called the warfare or conflict thesis, they laid into me with a litany of insults. So I gave them several links to lectures by world-class scholars like Lawrence Principe, David Lindbergh, Ronald Numbers, Alan Chapman, and Edward Davis. I will place the links to these lectures that I posted into the show notes so you can see what I was giving them. What was their response? Well, those are all just creationists. They have to be. Why? Well, because they're saying something that this particular atheist didn't like, namely that their cherished view that religion was the scourge of science is largely misinformed and out of date. This then led me to post a link to the Cambridge Faraday Institute lectures. These lectures, uh, in case you don't know, are given by some of the world's best scientists, historians, and theologians, many of whom are hardly Christian, if at all, and nearly all are evolutionists. All of the lectures deal with some aspect of the interaction between science and religion, for that is the whole goal of the Cambridge Faraday Institute, to examine at the top levels of scholarship the interactions between science and religion. For the quote-unquote skeptics in the group, because religion is, to their minds, so antithetical to science that any person who tries to even insinuate that it's not must be too biased to be a real scholar and therefore can be rejected without engagement. For these supposed evidence-based, critical, and free-thinking, reasonable, rational skeptics, there can be no evidence ever adduced to the contrary. For those who claim that atheism is just a lack of belief with zero doctrine or dogma, that dogmatic certitude of their beliefs surely waylays their objectivity. I even had a couple say that they didn't need to read or listen to these quote-unquote creationists because they were well-informed and had done their research on the history of science and religion. For example, one of them said, I've heard most of the arguments for religion, science, quote-unquote reconciliation, not really convincing, really unnecessary, gives an overall feeling of, quote, if you can't beat them, then join them, end quote, weaseling out of the hole religion has put itself into. Thanks, but no thanks, end quote. Now, when I asked them what professional historians and scholars they read that informed this view, <laughs> Dawkins, Harris, Krauss, and Hitchens objective sources indeed another said quote i think i've listened to enough william lane craig and company to get the gist of what is probably going to be said end quote probably going to be said they don't know apparently when the words science and religion are used it must be only by people like william lane craig and company and why is that a bad thing i'm not sure probably because air kraus has told them so Another said, quote, I've already investigated the science on the causes of religion, so attempted apologetics that presupposes religion has a legitimate foundation without establishing that foundation are a waste of time. Please provide evidence that religion has a legitimate basis beyond superstition first. Then we can move on to science and religion together, end quote. Again, when asked who he had investigated, Lawrence Krauss. I mean, ignore all of the world's leading historians who are actual experts. One anti-theistic uh, pundit is all that I need. Another wrote, quote, looking at some of the headings pointed out, your quote-unquote experts, yes, he put that in quotes, 
just like you, seem to be doing little more than, quote, continuing to rattle off mere opinion, end quote, judging by the disparaging use of labels like social Darwinism, which has nothing to do with either atheism or science, and scientism, which is a position you assume we hold. I'll make you a deal. I'll read whatever you suggest I read. In turn, you educate yourself on the arguments that atheists here actually make. Instead of simply regurgitating the straw man, you seem to be suckling from your quote-unquote experts, end quote. Yeah, here experts is, again, in quotes. So apparently, without actually listening to any of the lectures, he thinks that they're all just rattling off mere opinion. And then until I understand what atheists there are arguing, which I do, and stop, quote, regurgitating straw men, end quote. <laughs> Notice here that unless I comply and understand, here the implication means go wide-eyed with awe and majesty at Krauss and company, then he won't educate himself with what actual scholars and experts are saying on the issue. What makes him think that they are not experts? Well, because he has Krauss telling him otherwise, and he doesn't need to actually read multiple PhD secular historians that contradict his blind faith. Now, for those of you listening, let me just read, I'm going to read a, a few, uh, probably 10 or 11 of these bios, just so you can get the gist of who these lecturers are at the Faraday Institute that I provided. Number one, Dr. John Headley Brook held the Andreas Adiris Professorship of Science and Religion and Directorship of the Ian Ramsey Center at the University of Oxford from 1999 to 2006. He is an Emeritus Fellow of Harris Manchester College, Oxford, and Honorary Professor of the History of Science at Lancaster University. Number two, John Bryant obtained a first-class degree in natural sciences and a PhD in plant biochemistry at the University of Cambridge. After doing postdoctoral research at the University of East Anglia, he held academic positions at Nottingham and Cardiff before being appointed as Professor of Cell and Molecular Biology and Head of Biosciences at the University of Exeter. John is the past president of the Society for Experimental Biology, a former chair of Christians in Science, and is currently Professor Emeritus of Biosciences at Exeter. He was a visiting research associate at the Brookhaven National Laboratory, USA, from 1992 to 1997, and visiting professor of molecular biology at West Virginia State University, USA, from 1999 to 2007. Number three, Alan Chapman was born in 1946 in Manchester and has always maintained close connections with the Northwest. He graduated from the University of Lancaster and then did postgraduate work at Wadham College, Oxford. He is a historian by training, and his particular research interests are in scientific biography and astronomy. He teaches the history of science in the Faculty of Modern History, Oxford. In addition to published research, he lectures extensively in the history of science in England and abroad, and in January 1994, he gave the Royal Society's Wilkins Lecture in the History of Science on Edmund Haley. During 2003 to 2004, he was visiting professor in the history of science at Gresham College, London. Peter Clark is an associate professor at the Department of Cell Biology and Morphology, University of Lucerne, Switzerland. Following a first degree in engineering science in 1968 at the University of Oxford, he did a PhD with philosopher neurobiologist Donna McKay at the University of Kiel in the United Kingdom. Then postdoctoral jobs at Oxford and St. Louis before moving to his present department in 1977. His research focus on neural death occurring naturally in development or pathologically in cerebral eschisma and hypoxia. 
He has been awarded two international prizes, the Engel Writing Award and the DeMuth Foundation Award for Medical Research. Number five, Elaine Howard Eklund is a Rice faculty scholar at the Baker Institute for Public Policy, the Herbert S. Autry Chair Professor of Sociology, Director of the Religion and Public Life Program, and Co-Director of the Benuick Institute for the Study of Advance and Advancement of Religious Tolerance at Rice University. An expert on international change, Eklund is a sociologist who examines how individuals bring changes to religious and scientific institutions. Number six, Ian Hutchinson is Professor of Nuclear Science and Engineering at Massachusetts Institution of Technology, MIT, and former head of the Nuclear Science and Engineering Department. He holds MA in Natural Sciences from Cambridge University and a PhD in Engineering Physics from the Australian National University. In addition to over 160 scientific article, journal articles, Dr. Hutchinson is widely known for his standard monograph, Principles of Plasma Diagnostics, whose second edition was published by Cambridge University Press in 2002. He has served on numerous national fusion review panels and editorial boards, editor-in-chief of the Journal of Plasma Physics and Controlled Fusion. He is a fellow of the Institute of Physics and the American Physical Society and was the 2008 chairman of the Division of Plasma Physics and the American Physical Society. Number seven, Gareth Jones is Deputy Vice Chancellor, Academic and International, at the University of Otago, New Zealand where he has been Professor of Anatomy and Structural Biology since 1983. Prior to this, he held positions at the University of Western Australia and University College London. He is a visiting fellow at the St. Edmunds College, Cambridge, and an adjunct professor at Liverpool Hope University. In 2004, he was made a Companion of the New Zealand Order of Merit for his contributions to science and education. He holds the degrees of DSC and MD, for his publications in neuroscience and bioethics, respectively. He is deputy chair of the New Zealand government's advisory committee on the assisted reproductive technology. Number eight, David C. Latte is the assistant professor of biology, undergraduate research coordinator at Queens College, City University of New York, where he runs a behavior and evolution laboratory, focusing mainly on learned behavior in birds and humans. Professor Latie received his BS in Biology and History from Gordon College. He received a PhD in Moral Philosophy and Philosophy of Biology at the Whitefield Institute, Oxford, for a study of the contribution science can and cannot make to the understanding and foundations of morality. He then received a PhD in Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Michigan for a study of rapid evolution in the introduced birds. He has been a Darwin Fellow at the University of Massachusetts and a Kirstein NRSA Research Fellow with the U.S. National Institute of Health, where he studied the development of evolution of birdsong. Number nine, Edward J. Larson holds the Hugh and Hazel Darling Chair in Law and the University Professor of History at Pepperdine University and recipient of the 1998 Pulitzer Prize in, in History. Uh, he served as Associate Counsel to the U.S. Congress Committee on Education and Labor and a and an attorney with a major Seattle law firm, and retains an appointment at the University of Georgia where he has taught since 1987. Number 10, Paul Shallard received a PhD in cosmology from the University of Cambridge. He subsequently pursued postdoctoral research at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, and then back in Cambridge with the Trinity College Research Fellowship and a PARC Advanced Fellowship. He is now a faculty member, professor of cosmology at the Department of Applied Mathematics and Theoretical Physics at the University of Cambridge. Since 1997, he has also been director of Cosmos, 
the UK National Cosmology Supercomputer, which entails oversight of scientific activities and grants, as well as coordinating weekly management meetings. His research includes uh, numerical modeling of early universe cosmology, notably cosmic strings, and theories for large-scale structural formation and cosmic microwave sky fluctuations. Number 11, sorry, I'm gonna butcher this name, Lionel Tarasenko was born in Paris in 1957 and came to the UK in 1970. He gained the degrees of BA in engineering science in 1978, a DPhil in medical engineering in 1985, both from the University of Oxford. He then held a number of positions in academia and industry before taking up a university lectureship in Oxford in 1998. Since then, he has devoted most of his research and effort to the development of signal processing techniques and their application to diagnostic systems, especially in the context of medical problems. He has won a number of awards for his research, such as the British Computer Society Medal, the Rolls-Royce Chairman's Award and tech for Technical Innovation, and the Silver Medal of the Royal Academy of Engineering. Professor Tarasenko has held the Chair of Electrical Engineering at Oxford University since 1997. He is the author of 150 refereed publications, 140 conference papers, three books, and 25 granted patents. Yeah, but these people are all creationist, anti-scientific fundamentalists who are just trying to argue God done it and smuggle God back into science because they are scared that science is disproving God. <laughs> and this is what passes for reason with these people in this group. Number two, books are apparently dogs now. In one of these discussions, the claim was made that the Bible cannot be trusted because it was, quote-unquote, ripped off from other ancient Near Eastern texts about creation and the flood. Now, here I'm not going to have time or space to develop the content and the rebuttal to such a claim, but will again give the links to the sources that I provided, in, uh, provided these atheistic fundamentalists with so you can hear some of the lectures or read up on yourself. As a humorous aside, in this same thread, someone actually tried arguing that the church was immoral because in the Middle Ages it ripped off architectural themes from the Greco-Roman period. I wish I was kidding, but that was seriously her argument. And what was her support? None really, besides her saying that she studied art history as a part of her minor in college. Seriously. Now, to the claim that the Bible is guilty of plagiarism of other ancient Near Eastern texts, I asked him if they were familiar with how ancient Near Eastern texts would often use other sources, not to plagiarize, that is to take credit for the work of someone else, but for the purposes of polemics. Now, just as a quick aside, so you kind of know what's going on, here, polemics is used in the ancient Near Eastern studies in a kind of different way than what we mean by it today. Today we usually mean something like the kind of rhetoric used to attack a different point of view. Well, in the ancient Near East, that was sort of what polemics was, but polemics was much more than that. Polemics in the ancient world would usually take the rhetoric, idioms, cliches, imagery, etc. of some view, recast it just slightly, and then use it against the original to show why the original view was deficient in some way. So for example, we read in Exodus the conflict between Moses and Pharaoh, that God had a strong right arm. Over and over and over we're told this, that God had a strong right arm. Well, why? Because in Egyptian rhetoric, Pharaoh was the one who had a strong right arm, and it was that strong right arm that allowed him to rule over the land as absolute sovereign 
and provide life-giving powers. It was a sign of his divine right to rule. Well, when Moses was writing, speaking against Pharaoh and his self-righteous religious views, Moses was saying that it was, in fact, God who was the one with the power and the right to rule, not Pharaoh. This is polemics. So it's not just insulting, it's turning rhetoric around. We see then that polemics is actually a kind of satire where the author takes some thought form or literary device or idiom and uses it to satirize the original context or original use of the idiom. This kind of political satirization of Egyptian and other ancient Near Eastern cultures is rampant throughout the Pentateuch. It starts in the creation narrative, runs through the flood and the patriarchs, and comes to a head in the standoff between God and Pharaoh. There is a little bit of it later on in the the prophets as well, but it's mostly here in the Pentateuch. This is a much more plausible framework through which to understand the parallels that we see between Israel's texts and other ancient Near Eastern texts. And in this case, the changes to the themes, idioms, literary devices, etc. are often far more important to understand the polemics and what the author is intending than understanding the similarities. Now, considering that they refuse to read any actual scholars as we saw above, I was not expecting for them to be familiar with polemics and their role in the Old Testament. They said that they were not, and so I gave them some links, about six of them, which I will again list in the show notes. I didn't want to try and explain it myself since I knew that if it came from me, they would think that it was just my subjective opinion and that I was making things up and that there was no evidence for it because I'm not an expert and so forth. So I gave them links to articles and lectures, most of which had to do with the work of John Currid, an Old Testament scholar who has done some of the most outstanding work on this issue. Now, what happened next was one of the most bizarre, almost surreal incidents in my apologetics history. I I should also here note that I'm not discussing this in some vain attempt to justify myself. If I'm mistaken about something, then I'm mistaken and would like to know that I am and so I can correct it. I don't have an ego really and this this event didn't hurt my feelings so much as pique my interest about this new trend in the online atheistic community. I should also say that I've noticed this kind of rhetorical maneuvering elsewhere on the rise but this was just such a paradigmatic example of it that I that I just I just had to share this one. So what happened? I made this statement explaining why polemics was not theft. I basically gave the explanation that I just gave to you all, and then I said the statement, quote, polemics is a kind of satire, end quote. Now, this quote threw them into an absolute frenzy. They started saying that I was giving them satirical sources to read, that they couldn't take me seriously because I couldn't give them real sources. I was stunned. So I thought that maybe I just needed to clarify. I told them that I had given them serious sources about polemics and that it was polemics, the topic of the links, that is a kind of satire, not the links themselves. They then accused me of lying for giving satirical sources and then trying to change my story after they called me on it. This led them to go to about a dozen different posts and bring them all to a grinding halt by calling me a liar and trying to block any real conversations that I was having elsewhere. The main accuser then made a post just to call me a liar. 
and he asked the group who they trusted more, him or me. Now, despite the fact that I had not discussed anything with most of the people in the group, they all said that they would trust him. Why? Was it because they knew me and had had experience of me lying? Hardly. I haven't. Anyone who knows me well enough knows that if I make a mistake, that's what it is. It's a mistake. It's not a lie. But also that I attempt to have a civil and clear conversation as I possibly can. Well, what was the reason then? It was because I'm a Christian, which they believe that I'm prone to lying, an issue we'll address shortly. Now, besides the irony of them all saying that they were on his side, despite having no idea who I am or being completely absent on the, uh, the thread above, and having no knowledge of the situation, they all were going on pure emotion and engaged in a kind of biased circling of the wagons. This, this was almost humorous, actually, considering that this is the exact kind of behavior that they were more or less falsely accusing the Christians of engaging in. Then, the main accuser stated that I had done three things. First, that I only had given him one source. Second, that the source that I gave him was a satirical source. And third, that I only changed my story after he quote-unquote called me on it. I then allowed him the chance to confirm that that was his official complaint or to revise it. I screenshotted his comment, put it up and said, did you actually mean this or would you like to clarify? I encouraged him to go look at the original conversation and the ones where I had already shown him the proof that he was mistaken before he kept going down this path. He opted not to check and affirmed his complaint. At that point, I then showed screenshots of the six sources I had given him in the original thread. So much for his claim that I had only given him one source. By the way, he, he then tried to revise it to say, I only gave him one source that he could open. Well, actually, I, of the six sources, only one of them was a link to iTunes, which he wouldn't have been able to open maybe on his phone. The rest, if he could open one on a web browser, he could have opened all of them. So much for the first claim. I then challenged any in the thread who wanted to believe him over me to go to those links and see if they supported his second claim. Were any of them satire? No, none of them were. They were all serious sources. Strike down his second claim that I gave him a satirical source. And finally, I showed a screenshot where I was the one who brought up the term satire for the first time in the thread, the quote that I listed above, and so from the beginning had been making the same claim. There goes claim three that I only changed my tune after he called me on it. At this point, do you think that any atheist said, oh, well, sorry he lied about you, or sorry there was a misunderstanding? Nope, not one, not even close. In fact, they dug their heels in. Some of them continued to call me a liar, though I kept asking for evidence of how screenshots would have been helpful. But none even tried anything beyond just personal attacks or bigoted statements about how all Christians being liars and stupid and atheists having higher IQs and all that normal hot air. However, it got even more peculiar. One of them started showing screenshots of the quote, polemics is a kind of satire, as evidence that I had lied and given satirical sources. I tried to clarify again that I had said that that it was polemics, the subject of the links that was satire and not the links that were satirical. 
Now, one would think that basic reading comprehension would support that this was the syntax uh, of the sentence that entails it. Polemics is a kind of satire. But he just kept plugging his ears and calling me a liar. So then I asked him if any scholar who writes papers about satire in Shakespeare should be mocked because by their standard, they're writing a paper about satire and that is the same as writing a satirical paper. In response, he just kept quoting the same sentence. Polemics is a kind of satire. Polemics is a kind of satire. Polemics is a kind of satire. Which is true. Polemics is a kind of satire. So I tried to get them to break the sentence down by asking them what the subject of the sentence is. You know, subject, verb, object. What is the subject of the, of the sentence? Polemics is a kind of satire. Is it polemics or is it the articles that I've cited that I was saying are satire. Well, it is clearly that I was saying that polemics is satire because, well, that's what the sentence is. Polemics is a kind of satire. After asking that question and not being answered about two dozen times in various ways and to no avail, they just kept saying I was admitting that I gave them articles that were satire when I said that Polemics was a kind of satire. So I gave them this analogy to see if they agreed with their own line of argumentation. I said, I have a book about Dobermans. Dobermans are a kind of dog. Therefore, the book is a kind of dog. I even spelled out the analogy for them. These articles, analogous with books, are about polemics, analogous with Dobermans. Polemics, Dobermans, are a kind of satire, dog. Therefore, the articles, books, are satire, dogs. <laughs> now, what was their response? Would they see the absurdity and bad grammar entailed by their insults? No way. They just said that only a theist would be so stupid enough to think that the articles weren't satirical and that I hadn't admitted it. They over and over again could not even allow for the most basic English syntax and by their rationale, it would entail that no matter what a book or paper is about, the book is actually that very thing. A book about the sun, which is a kind of star, entails that the book is a star. The book that is about Dobermans, which is a kind of dog, guess what? The book is a dog now. Yes, they defended that repeatedly and across multiple threads, not just one person defending themselves, but numerous people. Why? Because they couldn't ever imagine that a Christian could be right about anything and that everything we say must be dishonest, deceptive lies. They painted themselves into such a preposterous corner and rather than just admitting error and starting over from scratch, they defended it to the bitter, irrational end, even to the point of agreeing that books are dogs and this is what counts for reason with these people number three the bias of the balconiers every thread has what j.i packer calls the travelers and the balconiers the travelers are those that are involved in the journey these would be the people in the thread engaged in the actual conversation the balconiers are those that are there for the show they are the spectators to the parade who will occasionally jump in to feel like they are part of it all. They don't actually care what is being said. 
In fact, often they don't even take the time to see what is or has been said. What they write usually doesn't even have anything to do with the content of the thread or any actual argument made from the side that they deem to be stupid, but rather they just use it as a platform to add mockery and insults. The, the tr tendency seems to be that whatever inflammatory meme or soundbite that an atheist says, so long as it presents Christians as stupid or irrational or anti-science or whatever, then it's awesome. And they'll chime in with their, oh, theists are stupid and liars and hate science and just go on faith because they have no evidence. Because for them, they think that everything that we as Christians say, that is, it's not only wrong, but it's actually the same thing as lying. They have no, no category for being incorrect, even if we are, such that to them, we are all dishonest liars. We're not wrong, we're not mistaken, we're liars, right? I mean, I don't think we're wrong, but even if we are wrong, it's not dishonest. This kind of bigotry is not that far off from the Nazi propaganda that pictured all Jews as being dishonest swindlers. The generalizations, distortions, caricatures, and hatred just is what makes their bigotry so obvious and their claims to be enlightened, free-thinking, noble humanists to be so obscenely imperceptive of their own biases. In fact, usually at this point, when citations of biblical passages get trotted out as if the Christians have never read those verses before, they show that they can only imagine the most hyper-literalistic, strained, contorted, distorted, uneducated, uncontextual reading of the text possible, usually without any notion that the Bible verses are not proverbs that stand on their own, but are part of a whole developed literary and theological and cultural framework. For them, only this hyper-literalism coupled with their parroted propaganda that God is an invisible sky daddy who inspired the English translation and that the only possible honest interpretation of the Bible is a kind of extreme young earth creationism that even most young earth creationists wouldn't accept and that is full of mythical creatures like talking snakes, dragons, and unicorns. Any attempt to show what the original author and the original historical context and the original language to the original audience well, you might, what it might actually mean, that is what is called the census literalis, well, to them, you might as well just be cherry-picking in a dishonest attempt to lie to them, once again, showing their disdain for actual scholarship and research. By the way, for more on the importance of a well-defined hermeneutic to interpret the Bible according to the census literalis, I've included a lecture series in the show notes called Lectures on Prophecy by Richard Pratt. The title of the series is, is pretty unfortunate since it's not actually a lecture on prophecy as in applying prophecy to what we read in the papers or see in the news or something like that. It's lectures on the grammatical historical hermeneutic and how to read Israelite prophetic literature as a genre in context. At this point, their final tactic comes in. If they will not, or as I'm tempted to think cannot, debate with reason and evidence have been shown the count, that countless scholars who all disagree with their point or seriously call into question such that they must heavily nuance it and refrain from a dogmatic and rigid, rigid generalization of it and have been backed into a corner where they are literally defending that books are dogs, they resort to the claim that unless we can prove God, then we need to shut the hell up and go home. 
and yes, I've tamed down what the usual language is for that kind of assertion. This kind of red herring is their final attempt to insulate themselves from ever needing to think critically and examine their own beliefs and assumptions. They seem to think that unless Christians can prove to them that God exists, which we saw a couple of episodes ago is just a dishonest challenge, that therefore Galileo was tortured and imprisoned, for example. If I cannot prove that God exists, therefore religion has always historically oppressed and blocked the advance of science or whatever, and that all those scholars who have shown this to be a complete myth are just wrong, biased, young earth creationists, naive Bible literalists, pseudo-scholars. Wow. Someone really should tell that to the universities that gave them their PhDs and that employ them to teach thousands of young minds. Universities such as Cambridge, Oxford, Yale, MIT, Stanford, UCLA, Wisconsin, Duke, Rice, Harvard, Princeton, and so forth. And what makes these anti-intellectual atheistic fundamentalists so sure that these scholars are wrong? I can almost hear the bagpipes now. Theists are biased liars, this I know, for Harris, Hitchens, and Dawkins doth tell me so. So much for critical thinking when you can excuse away by caricature every scholar that would disagree with you, when you can ignore the stated arguments of the opposing side and only engage with memes, when you can ignore simple grammar and syntax to make the other person say whatever it is you want them to mean so that you can mock them and hunker down for the long winter of your dogmatic slumber uninterrupted by reason or critical thought. Books are dogs. Yes, books are dogs now. <laughs> this is what passes for reason and rational debate with these people. I guess it is true. If we give the fundamentalists enough rope, they will actually just hang themselves. Well, thank you again for joining me on this special edition of the Free Thinker Podcast. Next time, we'll pick up our series on the quote-unquote slavery in the Bible. As always, if you have any comments, questions, concerns, criticisms, condemnations, or commendations, feel free to visit us at freethinkerpodcast.blogspot.com, email us at freethinkerpodcast at gmail.com, or join the Free Thinker Podcast uh, group on Facebook. Thank you again and have a great week. God bless everyone.